Well, welcome everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's a, a real pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker, uh, Gillian Slovo. Um, Gillian was born in South Africa, moved to London with her parents who were moving here in exile at the age of 12, I think, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and as many of you will know, both her parents were, were major figures in the struggle against apartheid over many years. Her mother, Ruth First, was an iconic figure, an activist in South Africa, an activist in exile, a university teacher here in Britain, in uh, Tanzania in, and in Mozambique where um, she was assassinated, I think in 1982, um, somewhere like that. And her, her father also is a figure of enormous prestige, uh, a major leader of the African National Congress, the chief of staff of Mkonto Wesizwe, the armed wing of the African National Congress, and the general secretary of the South African Communist Party. Gillian has written no less than 12 novels, and I'm not going to list them all here, you'll be pleased to hear, but they, they include, importantly, Red Dust about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was turned into a, a film in 2004. They also include Ice Road about uh, the siege of Leningrad, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize. And I think most recently, anyway, the most recent one I've read, um, An Honourable Man about General Gordon and the siege of Khartoum, a strangely topical as well as historical novel. She's also written plays about Guantanamo Bay and about the riots um, here in London in uh, 2011. And she's written a widely discussed memoir of her family, Every Secret Thing. And in 2013, she was awarded the... A golden pin award for her whole oeuvre, her, her whole body of work to date. Well, as some of you will know, our theme um, this whole year has been about war and peace, about militarism and pacifism, and naturally with the centenary of the First World War, we've often been thinking about states as the agent of war, but of course it's, it's also often the case that progressive movements and liberation struggles have chosen armed struggle for one reason or another. And it's, it's that kind of decision and its effects um, which Gillian's going to be exploring tonight. So she's going to be speaking for about um, 45 or 50 minutes and then we'll have uh, time for questions and discussion. But can I just ask you now to join me in welcoming our speaker, Gillian Slover. Thank you. And it is an immense honour to give this lecture not least because when I was growing up, Ralph Miliband and his wife, Marian Kozak, who I'm really pleased to see here, were frequent visitors to my family house. They shared a determination to work for political change that could deliver both justice and equality, in my parents' case in South Africa, and they argued furiously about the best way of achieving this. I suspect that my father, Joe Slovo, whose CV, as Robin said, included a short stint as General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, was a bit of an apparatchnik too far for Ralph. But between Ralph and my mother, Ruth First, there grew a special understanding. They hailed from different backgrounds, different countries, different continents even, but they shared a rejection of dogma and an unwavering belief in the need to look each 
problems square in the face, no matter how discomforting this might be. So I've been asked as part of the series on war and peace to talk about the impact of the armed struggle in South Africa and on its political transformation. And I hope in my own small way I can do it in the spirit of both Ruth and of Ralph. At the same time, my father's involvement in the armed struggle, he was one of the ANC's foremost military strategists and, as Robin has said, chief of staff of the ANC's army. This means that I grew up in the midst of the debate that I'm going here to explore. Not for the most part that this debate was open. My adolescence was partly spent wondering what was in the document whose secret ink my father could often to be seen decoding. And later, when both my parents had moved to Mozambique, visits would be spent on the beach in sight of the border of South Africa, hearing their fierce debates as to the relevant weight to be given to the political versus the military. So it seemed appropriate to me that I started my exploration in Maputo, where my parents both once lived, my mother working in the university and my father in the military underground. I visited them when they were there, but not since they had left until, and since my mother had died. Until that is, in 2004, when my sisters and I were invited to an ANC commemoration of their military dead. Twelve members of the ANC's army, Umkomtawe Siswe, MK for short, are buried in Maputo's dusty cemetery. They hold a special place in MK history. They had all been part of an elite unit, Special Operations, Special Ops for short, that kept separate from the bulk of the ANC army, was commanded by my father. Eighteen months um, before they had been killed, um, Special Ops had announced its existence by blowing up the Sassel oil refinery in South Africa. Bent on revenge, the South African government had, in January 1981, sent their own special forces who, having blacked themselves up and crossed the border, travelled to Maputo's suburb of Matola and attacked, killing 12 MK people who were in safe houses there. Three of the attackers, all ex-Rhodesian security force members, also died in the gun battle, as did a Portuguese engineer who had the misfortune to be travelling in a similar car to my father's along a road that my father often used. So we, Ruth's three daughters, knew those graves. Our mother, killed in 1982 by a letter bomb that had been sent by the South African police, had been buried in the same patch as the MK soldiers. And now, more than 20 years later, we were back, keeping company with the families of the Matola fallen, and as well many former members of MK who had once been also based in Mozambique. At first, it was a strange event, especially for those who remembered the old days when Frelimo, Mozambique's ruling party, had provided the ANC with a base that it desperately needed. Those days had been full of food shortages, revolutionary slogans, and a feeling that the world would soon be changed for the better. 
But three years after the Matola killings and two years after Ruth's, the South African government's support for the rebel Renamo group had brought Mozambique to the brink. The Mozambique government was driven to sign the Incomati Accord, which saw the eviction of the ANC from Mozambique in exchange for South African agreement to end their support for Renamo. Since then, Mozambique has give, all but given up its socialist aspirations. In 2004, when we went back for the commemoration, the economy was booming, with revolutionary slogans replaced by the onward rush of capitalist development. And, of course, South Africa was free. Back in 1980, most of Maputo's ANC residents had been soldiers or activists whose events were dominated by political speeches. But for the 2004 commemoration of the Matola raid, the South African High Commissioner, a committed Christian, had decided to put organized religion at its core. We met at the graveside to watch an army band playing two national anthems, and then we went to a cathedral where we joined choirs of both countries and bishops and archbishops and other church people. There were readings from the Bible and hymns and prayers. This, it appeared, was going to be a commemoration of an armed struggle without reference to its soldiers. Until, that is, that Jacob Zuma stepped up. By 2004, the Mandela presidency had given way to Thabo Mbeki's, and Mbeki's denialism about AIDS was beginning to dent the ANC's reputation for the high ground. Added to this were allegations of corruption around an arms deal whose murky depths have still not been fully explored. Jacob Zuma was then Mbeki's deputy president, and as rumours of his involvement in corruption and fraud got louder, rumours which would soon lead to him being forced out of office, he was clearly fighting for his political life. But the man who stepped up to the front of the cathedral was not the beleaguered deputy president or the troubled father, part of the corruption allegations centred around one of his sons at the time. He was just JZ, as everybody used to call him, who, having been one of the first MK recruits, had served 10 years in Robben Island and who, on release, had left the country to work in the ANC underground. This JZ was an MK insider, and he talked about the days of armed struggle from the inside. About that day in 1981, when on hearing of the attack, he had gone to Matola, he described the devastation he saw and the grief he felt. The dead, he said, had been his comrades, his colleagues, his friends. He talked of them as heroes who had played a vital part in the struggle. And then he began to sing, not hymns in praise of a merciful God, but fighting songs, many of them developed in the camps in Angola, Tanzania and Uganda. The atmosphere in the cathedral lifted. Here at last was the past as most of the participants remembered it, and Zuma the man just put sound to it on their behalf. One song in particular of those days, the MK song Hamblakale Wekontu, 
is a gloriously soft choral piece first sung by NK soldiers during the Zimbabwe campaigns of 1967 and 68, which urged the soldiers to go well and to get ready to kill the Boers. Zuma is now in his second term as president, and South Africa is a different country. For the born-free generations, apartheid and the struggle against it is history. And what served in war is no longer acceptable in peace. In 2011, for example, Julius Malema, the leader of the Economic Freedom Front, was convicted of a hate crime for singing one of MK's songs, which included the words, Shoot the Boar. Now, despite that Malema had been expelled from the ANC for indiscipline, this decision by the courts brought protest from former MK soldiers. As one of them put it, the bonding of young revolutionaries was weaved through the songs we sung at jazz hour in the camps. The singing in the platoon as we waited for the next order travelled with gunpowder in the detonating cord, with the velocity and ring of the 7.62 caliber bullet of the AK-47, a grand-sounding echo of those days. But the question is, did the firing of these 7.62 caliber bullets actually have anything to do with the political transformation? And if it did, how much has an armed struggle impacted on the new South Africa? In a recent review of a memoir by Robin Renwick, who's a British ambassador to South Africa during the late 80s and early 90s, the columnist Simon Jenkins poo-pooed the claims of sport boycotters and sanction campaigners to have helped affect change in the country. In reality, he wrote, the ending of apartheid was the outcome of a specific crisis within Afrikanerdom in which outsiders played little or no part. De Klerk, he goes on to say, had a Damascene conversion boldly and emphatically turning to reform. He realised that apartheid was losing intellectual and moral sway over the white minority. He could see the game was up. What Jenkins fails to weigh in this balance is the extent to which the mass protests of the 1980s the refusal by the black majority rather than the white minority to put up with apartheid. And he also did not include the ANC military, and he didn't examine what they, part they played in pushing Afrikanerdom into crisis. To ignore the political unrest in the country, the rise of the UDF, the United Democratic Front, which joined with the Congress of South African Trade Unions to form the Mass Democratic and then took up the call to render the country ungovernable, is more than questionable to ignore that. But what about the military struggle? Did it in any way affect the outcome? To explore this, I'm going to go back to the 1960s. In his No Easy Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela uses the old African expression that, and I quote, the attacks of the wild beast cannot be exerted with only bare hands, to explain the ANC's decision to take up arms. It was a moment long in the making. Founded in 1912, the ANC had spent its first four decades petitioning the government and the Queen. 
But by the 1940s, a new generation of activists mocked the organization for being a toy telephone that kept trying to get through through lines that were actually not connected. They wanted change, and to push this through, they founded the ANC Youth League. Uh, youth has always been a movable feast in the ANC. One of their number, Walter Sisulu, had been born in the year of the ANC's birth. But this Youth League, whose founding members included two future ANC presidents, Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela, argued for direct action against race discrimination and its codification into law, and they won the argument in the organization. Thus began began the defiance campaign, a series of Gandhian-style civil disobedience campaigns against apartheid's discriminatory laws. The government responded by criminalizing civil disobedience. The ANC then set about consulting the people of South Africa as to their preferred constitution. This exercise culminated in the drafting of the Freedom Charter, which is the ANC's guiding document, and that begins with its famous South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. But the police raided and broke up the Congress in Cliptown, which was debating and passing the charter. 156 activists were charged with treason in a trial that lasted four years. The apartheid courts then still retained some degree of independence, and all the treason trialists were eventually found not guilty. But... Just before the last four were let off, the police fired on a peaceful crowd which, organised by the Pan-African Congress, the PAC, was on its way to a Sharpeville police station to burn their passes. By the time the salvo ended, 69 people lay dead. That was on the 21st of March 1960. Within 10 days, the government declared a state of emergency, jailed activists and banned both the ANC and the PAC. It was at this point that the militants of the ANC and their allies decided to take up arms. A 1985 message from Nelson Mandela that was smuggled out of jail and read at a rally in Soweto explained the rationale behind this decision. My colleagues and I, his message read, wrote in 1952 to Milan asking for a round-table conference to find a solution to the problems of our country. But that was ignored. When Stradon was in power, we made the same offer. Again, it was ignored. When Favort was in power, we asked for a national convention for all the people in South Africa to decide on their future. This, too, was in vain. It was only when all other forms of resistance were no longer open to us that we turned to armed struggle. It was not a decision carelessly taken. As Oliver Tambo, acting president of the ANC during its exile years, told the World Council of Churches in 1987, we, who have been victims of silence for centuries, know its true meaning. Our own experience has taught us to hate violence. It was to terminate the violence against our people, which is inherent in white minority domination, that the ANC was formed. For almost 50 years, and even under extreme provocation of the apartheid system, we resisted the temptation to resort to armed struggle. In the end, decades of non-violent resistance earned us a banning order.
It is well, he continued, to bear in mind that the ANC was declared an illegal organization almost two years before we resorted to armed struggle. But, he concluded, the apartheid regime left us no choice. The source of violence throughout our region is the apartheid regime. To end that violence, we have to bring the apartheid system to an end. This was not the first time South Africa had seemed armed resistance to white domination. During the 19th century, there were a series of causa wars against the British, which drove a causa councillor to say to those he called the British chiefs that the war is an unjust one. You are striving to extirpate a people whom you forced to take up arms. If we had succeeded, our right was good, for you began the war. We failed, and you are here. Other nations, the Griqua and the Sotos and the Pedis, also put up resistances during the 19th century, but all eventually fell to white conquest. And as well, the resistance of the Zulu nations is legendary, and not only in Hollywood. Their confrontations included the fight led by Zulu King Dingani, defeated by the British in 1840 at the Battle of Blood River, the moment when Zulu warriors led by Setshuayo overwhelmed British troops in 1879 at Iswan and the uprising by Bombarta in 1906, six years before the founding of the ANC, after which defeat, Bombata was beheaded and his head publicly paraded. When the ANC turned to arms, they referenced these earlier resistances, not only by calling the new army Nkonte Wesizwe, which means the spear of the nation, but also by launching their first military action on the 16th of December, which was a white public holiday, Dingan's Day that commemorated Dingan's defeat. At the time, the ANC president was Albert Lutuli, who had, in 1960, been given the Nobel Peace Prize for advocating nonviolent resistance. In his autobiography, Nelson Mandela glosses over the question of Lutuli's involvement in the founding of MK. But Moses Katani, who was then General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, has said that when Lutuli was told of the decision to start MK, despite his commitment to non-violence, he accepted the decision, although with the wry comment that when my son decides to sleep with a girl, he does not ask my permission but just does it. It's only afterwards when the girl is pregnant and the parents make a case he brings his troubles home. The questions facing who started, uh, those who started MK were more wide-ranging than in a normal pregnancy. With the ANC now banned, the decision was taken to separate its armed wing from its now underground political organisation. And while the ANC was an African-only organisation, MK's high command comprised Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu and a white man, Joe Slovo, who brought with him the collaboration of the underground South African Communist Party, it had been banned in 1950, whose members had long worked with the ANC as members of the Congress of Democrats. The first members of MK had little military experience. As Mandela has written, 
I, who had never been a soldier, who had never fought in battle, who had never fired a gun at the enemy, had been given the task of starting an army. And so to get up to speed, he did some reading. He read about the campaigns of Shea, Mao, Fidel, and Menachem Begin, and about the guerrilla tactics of the Boers against the British, and the armed struggle in, struggles in Ethiopia, Kenya, Algeria, and Cameroons, and of course, the history of African resistances in South Africa. The first decision that needed to be made concerned the type of armed action. Mandela listed the options under discussion as sabotage, warfare, terrorism, and open revolution. For a small and fledgling army, he wrote, open revolution was inconceivable. Terrorism inevitably reflected poorly on those who used it, undermining any public support it might otherwise garner. Guerrilla warfare was a possibility, but since the ANC had been reluctant to embrace violence at all, it made sense to start with a form of violence that inflicted the least harm against individuals, sabotage. Because it did not involve loss of life, it offered the best hope for reconciliation amongst the races afterwards. We did not want to start a blood feud between white and black. They decided in the first instance to attack military installations, power plants, telephone lines, and transportation, and to avoid all loss of life. In fact, in, in, once my father went back, I was traveling with him one day in South Africa, and we were in the country somewhere, and he suddenly said out of the blue, every time I travel in this country, when I look up and see telephone lines, I think about how I'm going to blow them up. <laughs> um, so it was on the 16th of December, 1961, Dingaan's Day. There were attacks on government installations in every major South African city, along with leaflets which, announcing the launch of MK, said, The time comes in the life of any nation where there remains only two choices, submit or fight. That time has come to South Africa we shall not submit, and we have no choice but to hit back by all means in our power, in defense of our people, our future, and our freedom. And the leaflet continued, we of Omkomte have always sought to achieve liberation without bloodshed and civil clash. We hope, even at this late hour, that our first actions will awaken everyone to a realization of the disastrous situation to which the nationalist policy is leading. We hope that we will bring the government and its supporters to their senses before it is too late, so that both the government and its policies can be changed before matters reach the desperate state of civil war. More acts of sabotage followed, 150 in the following 18 months. Mandela toured Africa and Europe to drum up support, and there was a recruitment drive within the country with recruits sent to Tanzania, Morocco, Ethiopia, and Algeria for training. At the same time, the Pan-African Congress also started its armed wing, POCO. The apartheid regime responded by increasing the gamut of draconian laws, including the 90-day detention law, which was detention without trial. Mandela was arrested and was in prison awaiting trial while the rest of the ANC leadership, who weren't out of the country, holed up in a farm in Ravonia, which, as it turned out, was a disastrous move. 
In one police swoop on Ravonia, almost the entire ANC leadership in the country was arrested. Ten of them, including Mandela, stood trial for their lives on charges that included recruitment for violent revolution and acts of sabotage. Much of the evidence against them came from their own documents, and in particular, a plan in discussion and, um, called Operation Mayobuyo, meaning Africa Come Back, which the police found in Ravonia. Mayobuyo foresaw 7,000 armed and properly equipped MK soldiers brought into the country by ship or air and distributed into different regions of South Africa and then, and I'm quoting here from the document, in the initial period when for a short while the military advantage will be ours, the plan envisages a massive onslaught on pre-selected targets which will create maximum havoc and confusion in the enemy camp and which will inject into the masses of people and other friendly forces a feeling of confidence that here at last is an army of liberation equipped and capable of leading them to victory. And from what we know of what happened next, this seems like a boy's own fantasy. And as my father put it in his unfinished autobiography, hindsight, that most infallible and sometimes irritating critic, will surely demonstrate how utterly unreal our objectors were. Not for the first time in the history of radical struggle did the optimism of will displace the pessimism of intelligence, leading at best to an heroic failure. Instead of victory, the eight Ravonian trialists who were found guilty were saved from death by international outcry and sentenced to life imprisonment in a country where life meant life. Many others were arrested, tortured, jailed and sent into internal exile. The internal ANC was completely shattered. Instead of confidence injected into the mass of people, there was fear, silence, and an overwhelming sense of defeat. For the next 12 years, until that is the Soweto uprising of 1976, it looked as if resistance inside of South Africa was dead. So much so that when the first of the jailed Soweto students crossed paths with some of those who'd been incarcerated in 1964, the new activists knew precious little about the history of the organization or about its leaders who had founded MK. To those who had, by virtue of being outside the country, escaped the 1964 dragnet, to them fell the task of reigniting resistance inside the country. As Oliver Tambo said, it appeared as if the guns of MK had been silenced for all time. The only cohesive, organized force of our revolution that remained at the time was the comrades who'd been sent out of the country to train in politics and in the art of modern warfare. What followed was years of failed military attempts. MK had 500 fighters, most of them trained in the Soviet Union, but those that were able to infiltrate the country were soon arrested. Between 1964 and 76, in fact, not a single ANC shot was fired in anger inside the country. The 1967 Wanky expedition, when the Latuli detachment of ANC fighters crossed the Zambezi River to band with fighters of Zapu against the Rhodesian regime, 
and it was an attempt by the ANC to build a kind of Ho Chi Minh trail into South Africa. This attempt ended with men lost and the ANC and ZAPU forced to withdraw into Zambia. In 1970, the Aventura ship that was supposed to infiltrate MK soldiers in the country using presumably the Cuban model of the grandma, it had to turn back after the captain got cold feet. The problem was not only that South Africa was surrounded by states friendly to it, giving the ANC no direct access, but also the lack of active resistance inside South Africa. After the wanky failure, my father said, guerrilla warfare is above all a political struggle by means which include armed activities. It cannot be won by soldiers alone. Armed groups, however heroic, have not the slightest chance of surviving in isolation from the general stream of political ferment and organization in the country. And in the first decade of the ANC's exile, political ferment was all but absent. This was not just the result of the vicious crackdown that had silenced opposition inside the country. To quote again from Joe, from his No Middle Road, which is his 1976 justification for the armed struggle, in the political sphere, he wrote, distortions crept in. The commencement of armed struggle tends to monopolize more and more of the energy and resources of the movement, especially one unpracticed in the art of the new strategy. The energies and resources devoted to the planning and execution of acts of sabotage and to the military apparatus began to affect the pace of political work amongst the people. He went on to describe the ANC's failure to take the mass base seriously, instead prioritizing sophisticated actions by a professional conspiratorial elite. He said that the Ability to commence military operations, to sustain itself, and eventually to create an all-round climate of collapse in which a direct political solution becomes possible is not the function of military tactics alone. It is dependent upon a comprehensive political strategy in which the core factor is the mobilization of a popular revolutionary base. Unless the struggle is supported by this base, serves it, and is guided by it, it has as dismal a future as any isolated group of bandits. In this light, popular insurgency is a continuation of the political struggle by means which include armed action. The tension between a controlling elite whose plans had to, by virtue of the situation, be kept secret and the difficulty of getting anybody into the country for political mobilization goes to the heart of the dilemma that the ANC faced. And their success or otherwise in balancing these sometimes conflicting demands must be part of any assessment of the role of their armed struggle. And in the 1960s and 1970s, there was precious little success in either. But then, a number of events helped a new generation shake off the fear and inaction of their elders. Amongst these was Steve Biko's Black Consciousness Movement, which, inspired by the Black Panthers in America, led a resurgence of political militancy in South Africa, particularly amongst the young. 
At the same time, a series of industrial strikes hit the country as workers protested the rising gap between wages and prices. Coincidentally, armed resistance in countries like Guinea-Bissau and Mozambique began to impact on Portugal, whose population could not see the point of their unelected government's colonial wars. The Portuguese army rebelled, ending Portuguese presence in Africa by overthrowing its government in the Carnation Revolution. With the end of Portuguese rule, particularly in Mozambique, the ANC now had a more realistic chance of infiltrating soldiers into the country. At the same time, those inside the country took the successes of Frelimo in Mozambique the MPLA in Angola and Amal Cabral's PAIGC in Guinea-Bissau to mean that they also might one day win. And then a bunch of ordinary schoolchildren marched in protest against the imposition of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. When police fired on them, killing many, protests spread through the country and, despite increasing loss of life, continued... The courage of schoolchildren had ended more than a decade of apathy. Not only did people begin organising inside the country, a growing number of youth also left the country to join the ANC. And what they wanted was guns, and what they wanted to do with them was to go back home and fight. Easier said than done. The ANC now had to find the resources to house, clothe, feed and train the new recruits. On top of this, the regime infiltrated spies amongst them. When the ANC tried to uncover them by taking detailed personal histories, cross-checking these histories with others from the area, the regime began to send two or three from the same district so that they could then back up each other's stories. On the plus side, the ANC soon had camps in Angola and and a base in the frontline state of Mozambique, and the new recruits soon began to make their mark. Between 76 and 79, there was an escalation of armed activities. Railway lines were sabotaged, police stations attacked, and Bantu administration officers bombed. But the problem remained. How to safely get MK soldiers into the country, and even if they managed that, Given that they were facing the biggest and best armed military in the whole of Africa, how to use armed actions as a trigger for political mobilisation. In 1978, an ANC delegation to Vietnam was persuaded that the political must lead the military and that a people's war, which was still the intention, would only succeed if it grew out of and was based on political organisation rooted in the people. The problem was how to affect this when it was so difficult to get trained ANC personnel and especially its leaders into the country. Although MK units did cross the border, mostly through Mozambique and then Swaziland, many of them were betrayed and disappeared or jailed or in some cases hanged. To counter the dangers of infiltration and betrayal and to try and use sabotage to demoralise the regime and enhance the NC's prestige amongst the black population, a special and secret unit, Special Ops, was set up with the aim of attacking key strategic um, targets. And I've already described how in 1980 its first action was to blow up the Sassol oil refinery. It was a spectacular success, a dramatic illustration of military might 
that was taken inside the township as a sign that the ANC was in a position to defend the black majority and to attack the economic base that propped up apartheid. And Monso Mokkabodi, whose codename was Abadi and who led the attack on Cecil, was a year later amongst the dead of Matola. Other special ops successes included an explosion at the Coburg nuclear plant, I don't think it was on stream yet, and at the Fortrecker military base. Although all MK um, units were under instruction to avoid casualties, when South African security forces increased their attacks on South African civilians, special ops units were allowed to attack military personnel the result being operations like the car bomb at the headquarters of the South African Air Force Base. In a 1983 interview, Oliver Tambo said that when we blew up the Cecil tanks, where thousands of people were working, the attack was carried out in such a way that no one was injured, yet our people were being captured, tortured and mercilessly interrogated We have fought back when attacked, and there have been many clashes with the police, but only the police. Lately, the regime has become more desperate. There have been assassinations of our people. In 1979, they tried to kill hundreds of our people at a military school in Angola. Going on to describe the Matola raid, as well as a number of other South African attacks in frontline states, he said, This means the conflict is escalating. We always thought it was going to be a bitter, brutal, vicious struggle, almost as a necessary precondition for the liberation of South Africa. We have to go through that. In 1985, after a full Congress of the ANC at Kabwe restated the need for the continuation of the armed struggle, Tambo said that Kabwe was a turning point in the history of all the people of South Africa It will be remembered by people as a council of war that planned the seizure of power by by these masses, the penultimate convention that gave the order for us to take our country through the terrible but cleansing fires of revolutionary war to a condition of peace, democracy, and the fulfillment of our people who have already suffered far too much and far too long. And again, in 1988, the ANC's national executive said that they reaffirmed the centrality of the armed struggle in the National Democratic Revolution and the need to further escalate armed actions and transform our offensive into generalized people's war. And to read this now and to know that two years after the statement, Mandela was released from prison and a negotiated settlement carved out is to wonder how many balls the leaders of the ANC were juggling. But that, I think, is hindsight speaking. Despite the beginnings of consultations with various influential Afrikaners, the ANC had no way of knowing then whether de Klerk would win over his whole party and also whether he could be trusted. To this effect, Oliver Tambo told Mac Maharaj, a former Robben Island prisoner and a member of the ANC's executive, that the ANC must plan for the seizure of power as well as for a protracted armed struggle. 
and find a way of balancing the four pillars of the struggle and strangling the regime through economic isolation and a negotiated settlement. To do this, Tambo continued, we need a sustained and expanding military offensive, but we are unable to take off in any significant manner. We hit one disaster after another continuously, year in, year out, precisely because we sought to run before we could walk. The solution that they come up with was an initiative codenamed Operation Vula, which is short for Vulindlela, meaning open the way. In this highly secret operation, most ANC members knew nothing of it, Tambo, Tambo sent Mac Maharaj, along with MK Regional Military Commander Sipiwe Nyanda and Ronnie Casrols, who had headed military intelligence, and he sent those three into South Africa. Here, at last, was a group of leaders, both political and military, inside the country, and it had taken 22 years to open this way. What they found, Maharaj said, was that MK command structures in the forward areas were working, and the forward areas mean South Africa, were working with outmoded geographies that makeshift political undergrounds could not integrate themselves with the occasional MK units they managed to make contact with, that incoming MK units frequently had little knowledge of the terrains they were traversing. Often military targets that were theirs for the taking were left untouched. Communications with the outside was difficult, and information often became distorted as it was passed on. They began to remedy this, as well as to train people to defend themselves against Encarta, who had started attacking members of the United Democratic Front. And what they also did while I was there was to act as go-between between Mandela in jail and Tambo outside. And we all know what happened next. In 1919, Nelson Mandela was released and the ANC unbanned. Once the negotiations got underway, and to show how serious it was about the peace, the ANC announced the unilateral disbandment of MK. The Vula operatives remained underground, only to be arrested by the government and then eventually released. The military struggle, such as it had ever been, was over. So had power flowed from the barrel of the gun? Given that the end came through not through revolution but through negotiation, the answer cannot be an unequivocal yes. There were members of the, of the exiled ANC, some of whom were expelled for this, who argued that instead of aiming for guerrilla war, the ANC should have armed the mass movement through its workers. Because the ANC did not do this, they argued, it was forced to negotiate apartheid's end rather than, receiving, rather than seizing revolutionary power as it had once said it wanted to do. But the history that I have described here shows just how difficult it was for the ANC to arm the resistance inside South Africa. Many different factors led to the negotiation table. These included the end of the Cold War, which deprived the ANC of Soviet bloc support and the apartheid government of the excuse that it was fighting communism, and as well the demands of a modern economy, the pressure from outside, and the growing resistance inside the country led to the negotiation ta um, table. 
At the same time, the fact that MK existed, the fact that it had the capacity to strike in the kind of extravagant gesture of Cecil, had kept the ANC alive in the country. So perhaps a better way of putting it is that a gun helped power flow. And I'm going to end now with a story about a different kind of gun and a different kind of striking back. It happened in March 1994 in the run-up to South Africa's first democratic election. Given how peaceful the at election turned out to be, it's easy to forget the undercurrent of fear that the far right and the white South African army might start a civil war. Remember, Mandela had been released in 1990, and in the four years of negotiations, more people had been killed in political violence than in the 20 previous years. The fear was real. And this is when Lucas Mangopi, leader of the Bopitaswana Bantustan, refused to let Bopitaswana be reincorporated into South Africa, which meant he was going to prevent Bopitaswana's residents from voting in the coming election. When protest erupted, including from his own police and defence forces, Mangopi appealed for help. His first port of call was Constant Fulkun, a former South African commander who had a large force of paramilitary people trained in preparation for a war with MK. At the last moment, Fulkun decided not to go into Bopetotswana. In his place, 700 members of the proto-fascist group, the AWB, rode in. Their intention, and I'm quoting here, to kill some Kaffirs. They ended up killing 42 people. I was in South Africa then. As the ANC and the nationalist government worked together to try and prevent a bloodbath, I sat, as it seemed, the whole country glued to the television. And so it was that I was witness to an act that transformed the atmosphere in the country and heralded the peace. As the invading AWB forces sped through the streets, policemen fired on one of their trucks, bringing it to a halt. There were three AWB men in that truck. Injured, they stumbled out. A policeman pointed his gun at them. And then, despite their upheld hands, he shot them. And he killed all three, live on television. A black man killing three white men. It was a moment that changed everything. It showed the AWB for what it was, a small bunch of irrelevant but vicious madmen whose power derived from the fact that those they attacked usually had no arms with which to defend themselves. The threat from the far right vanished overnight. A country whose government now has a principal stand against capital punishment celebrated. The war was over. Now it was clear an armed act had heralded the coming of the peace. It is still too much of a ferocious peace. The violence that was apartheid and the guns that supported and opposed it are everywhere too present. And yet, despite its many failures, not least to kickstart a revolution, it is clear that Nkomtawe Seasway also paid its part. Thank you.